Julian here, or you might know me from Haunting Phil House. I love horror. I definitely have so much fun doing horror movies and TV shows. Just anything horror. So, I recently just got to go to the arcade with my friend from Haunting, Olive slash Abigail. And she's definitely still real. Do you not believe me? Because nobody believes me. I hope your podcast goes really great and bye. They've conquered the big screen. Now, get ready for the spin-off sure to send chills down your spine. It's Nico, Brian, Mike, and Dustin in Don't Go Out There, the series. Welcome back, everybody, to the Don't Go Out There podcast. Just want to thank all our fans and listeners. Really appreciate the support. You guys are awesome. Before we get into tonight's review, just want to give a quick shout-out to our website, don'tgooutthere.com. Everything about our podcast is on the website. All of our episodes and interviews, if you want to check those out, We've done some incredible interviews in the past. Go check them out there in a specific tab by themselves so you don't have to scroll through hundreds of episodes on Apple or Spotify, etc. We also have our store if you want to grab a shirt, a mouse pad, a hat, all that good stuff. We'd love to see your pictures, you know, rep your favorite podcast. And Chan's Etsy page is also attached if you want to grab a Tumblr. All of our social media links are on there as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, TikTok. Like us, subscribe us, follow us, all that good stuff. And the last thing I want to shout out on our Website is our Patreon. We call it Blood Donors. Uh, we you know we have the traditional monthly reoccurring kind. If you want to support us, help us pay the bills, as we say. Or if you want, if there's a movie you want us to review, that option is available as well. Uh, just check out our website, don'tgooutthere.com. Also, if you haven't noticed, we've recently joined the Believe Network. So there's some ads on our program now. But if you want ad-free content, Go check us out on Blood Donors. The ad-free episodes will be available there. We appreciate your support. We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to DGOT the series. I'm super excited to record our second episode. We got a full crew tonight. We're going to be taking on uh, the Haunting of Hill House episode three and four. I can't remember the names of them. Please forgive me. Dustin made the graphic. And the twin got thing. The... That's right. That's right. Kind of sketchy oh, when you say it out of context oh, like that. Touch the twin thing. Touch the twin thing. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed our first episode. I had a blast with it. I'm really excited. We're reviewing shows and movies now. Um, I'm excited to have the full crew. Uh, Dustin, you're going to be doing scene by scene for episode three. Is uh, Mike, you missed last week. You want to just give your thoughts on Mike Flanagan and The Haunting of Hill House real quick before we get started? Yeah, sorry I missed last week. I had my days mixed up after my vacation. That's my fault. My bad. Otherwise, I'd have been happy to be on. Uh, I will say, as we've talked about on the show, at least I think, uh, we've done so many damn episodes now. I, I love Mike Flanagan and his work. Like, I think he does a great job. I haven't seen a show by him that I didn't like. Uh, this is no different. I'm just going to I'm gonna go ahead and spoil this as we get into the series. I fucking love this show. Like, I think it's really, really good. I'm a big fan of the storytelling here. Love the cast. Love the acting. And I uh, Again, it, it's not my favorite Mike Flanagan show. That would be Midnight Mass. That's fucking yeah. incredible. But uh, it is... Probably number two of all the ones I've seen. Uh, I really love this season. Now, season two, eh, 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 or not real. It, it, it's not, you know, man, y'all know what I mean. The Bly season, Manor. 
Yeah, the follow-up's not as good. Uh, I, I didn't even finish it. I turned it off. And, and I'm sure we'll probably do it at some point, but really love it. Love the cacting. I love the – man, some of the shots and the visuals of this season are really, really good, especially for a television show. Like, the way they tell the stories – and I get into it in my scene-by-scene scene, – the way they tell the story of this season, at the time, to me, the first time I watched it, felt new. Like, the, like the layer, like going back and forth between the past – and the present, like the way they were telling the stories I thought at the time felt new. It was hard to follow the very first time I ever watched it through this watch through this time, much easier to follow. And I really enjoy it. So yeah, man, love Mike fun again. I'm glad we're doing this one first because otherwise it would have been stranger things. Cause Dustin doesn't like stranger things. And that would have made me happy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, kiss my ass. Um, I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know that there was a, sequel or spinoff to this like what do you call it Bly? It, it, it's, it's not Bly? a sequel it's no no it's the haunting of Bly manor it's just the oh. next haunting series it's not any really related oh. to yeah Hill it's House not really anything. related but it oh, okay the haunting of Bly manor is kind of i mean a I lot of you, the, like everything mike flanagan does the cast is ex- almost exactly the same yeah. so like a lot of the same oh. players involved I'm glad you gave some love to Midnight Mass because that's that's on my list. Like I'm picking that. Yes, yes. Like I'm oh, picking it. I can't it, fucking so. wait. Dude. Hell yeah. I, I haven't seen. But, it. I want to. It's just. Hey, yeah. You only got so many hours in the day. I know you can if only you watch uh, watch, hey, Jason Six. Uh, yeah, you, yeah. You can only watch <laughs> Jason Six so many times. It was CJ Graham's birthday. What the fuck? We all do? Oh, come on. Hey, we interviewed him, and you can listen to that. At. Don't, don't go, go out there. there. Dot com. Dot com. Don't go out there. Dot com. Oh, sorry. Dustin, you ready to uh, kick right. us off with a scene by scene? Let's kick us off. I'm going to be honest with you. I forgot that I was uh, doing scene by scene on this one. So, Lord, bear me reading ability. The episode opens with young Theo laying in bed, and we see someone crawl into bed with her. She thinks it's Nellie, afraid of another nightmare, but we never see who it actually is. She tells Nellie she's squeezing too tight, and when she sits up, she's in bed alone, and she wonders whose hand she was holding. After opening credits, we see a young girl named Kelsey playing with the dollhouse and talking to adult Theo about a man she saw for the first time. He's just a big smile. Too big. He's always smiling, but he's not happy. Theo tells Kelsey that she's a lot like she used to be, a giant pussy. Theo talks to Kelsey's foster parents, who say they're concerned about Kelsey's behavior issues at school. Theo examines some of Kelsey's artwork before clearing, cleaning up, and we flash back to Theo and Hughes sorting through some stuff while packing. They open up a box and find an old bottle of wine, and then Theo walks into another room where Olivia and Mrs. Dudley are feeling some cold air in one small spot of the room. Back in present day, Theo and Cheryl are in the kitchen, and Theo tells Cheryl about Kelsey. Back in the past, and Luke and Nellie are looking at a horn coming out of the wall. Theo and Luke go into another room and find the other end, and they can hear Nellie talking on the other side of it. Theo says the bed in the room was a sick bed and walks off after touching the bed. She looks at her hand like there's something wrong with it, and we get a nice transition back to present day, uh, Theo extending her hand to another child patient. Later, she writes in his file and finds a copy of Stephen's book when she puts it in the cabinet. Flashback to six years ago, and Stephen is telling his sisters that he'll split royalties with them, but Cheryl is upset and wants the book pulled. She takes a moral high ground, and they all refuse the money. Next, we see the kid Theo dancing horribly to a music video on TV before the doorknob in the room starts rattling. As she approaches it, there's a loud bang that startles her. She, she looks under the door to see nothing at all. She thinks it's Luke and goes back to jamming out. Cut to current Theo dancing in a club, 
and then heading to the bar to close her tab. She sees her one night stand from before and she must have put it on her good because that woman looks like she wants some more. That's the first set of scenes. What do you guys think? <laughs> first of all, do you guys think that Theo is based partly on Rogue from X-Men? I mean, come on, the gloves, the appearance, superpowers. Ooh. Nico and Mike, I know you guys are talking about it. Eh? You, know, you know, I I can see where you're going with that, but I make another parallel uh, later in my scene by scene. and so <laughs> Okay, okay. Looks like you just went rogue on half the audience by using that reference. Anyway, go ahead. Not, not all. Not actually. You're in the minority there, Bucko. I would say. <laughs> Back to this. <laughs> we had the first two focusing on the oldest two siblings, and now we get this one focusing on the third in that progression with Theo being played, like we mentioned last week, the incredible McKenna Grace. Ghostbusters Four is going to be fire. But anyway, back to the focus of the themes and the senses in the series, like that Mac, Mike Flanagan does such a great job with. The first episode focused on sight or the lack thereof. Second episode focused on hearing, basically, you know, just hearing what we want. And now we get touch. Just again, more awesome layers from my guy Flanny. This episode was was different to me though in tone, like everything with this whole Mister Smiley subplot. It kind of felt like an episode of Law and Order SVU. Which is not a complaint. That show is awesome. I was just kind of pointing that out. Um, I did notice though during the uh, the talk with the girl at the start here, where she talks about building a brick wall all around the bad stuff in her head. Which remember she mentioned that in regards to building one, you know, as well when it came to Luke. Uh, I think in the first first episode, and then again in the second one where she was also physically sitting on a brick wall. Uh, I think was it Nelly? I think asked her to come to play, but. Anyway, it's also it's pretty interesting, I think, also like how all of the Crane children have responded differently to their trauma, where we've seen we saw Steven become a writer, which is basically, you know, a record keeper of sorts. Shirley became a fixer. And we get Theo kind of describing herself here in this set of scenes as a builder with those, you know, and I don't know, with those drugs, maybe Luke becomes a shooter. I don't really fucking know. But anyway, the last thing I'll say. I harped on last week's episodes, but I have to I have to again here. The transitions from Flanny going from the box to the box in the past, then the fridge to the fridge again, the apple to the apple. It's just it's just chef's kiss, man. Chef's kiss. And just how awesome is that scene where we realize that the other side of that door that Shirley and Nellie were trying to get into in episode one was Theo during doing aerobics. You know, kind of adding more mystery to that red room. Very, very cool. Layers just all over the place. Yeah, uh, I love, <laughs> I love these opening credits. Like every episode, like I think they do a really good job of kind of setting the mood for what the show is. Um, just, and I love those kind of a hint at the, you know, the red door, the red room, however you want to call it, in the opening credits. Um, again, just little bits of layering that we all, I'm sure, I, I'm sure we're going to talk a bunch about with Mike Flanagan throughout the series. I like these scenes with the with Theo because I really did want more character work here, and we're getting it. Like the the character of Theodore is it's probably my favorite of all the of all the Crane children. If I had to be honest, she seems pretty strong, independent in a way. Isn't trying to harp on the past, which I'll get to in a second. But her as a child psychologist, I think, was a really really good move. As far as you know, when we're going back to the past, we're getting to know the young kids. I think it's a really smart move to kind of make one of these characters a child psychologist that wants to dig into traumas that that people are suffering in their childhood. It just makes too much sense, man. Um, 
again, like I mentioned in my open, the first time I watched this through, I would get really mad at the back and forth of the past and present. And I, and I don't know why. Like, just a different mindset. This is now, which is weird to believe, a long time ago when this came out, if you can believe. I mean, a lot has happened since this came out. We had a whole pandemic. We were on lockdown for two years. Like, shit has happened. My, my taste had changed, and I really – I do like this layered storytelling. Shout out, which I didn't get to mention because I wasn't on. Olivia Crane is a nut job. Just throwing that out there. That's setting up something for later. Um, again, I like this scene where where all these kids are talking about the book because it does show everyone's different feelings about what's going on. How you know how they're handling Stephen writing this book about their childhood. What it, and it, it sets up something later with him and Theo that I really like as well. Um, and Good storytelling. Like, I just really love the writing of how these siblings all interact with one another. Uh, showing that family strife, which I think everyone can relate to a little bit. Uh, last thing here, I this going back and forth, I mentioned between young Theo, you know, and present day Theo, I really I love the transitions, which I'm ending the exact same way that Brian did. The way that they keep it the same thing, but now it's in a different time period, I just love it. You know, she liked to dance as a child. Guess what? That's just at the club fucking dancing. Same thing. Like, I really love how they've used the connective tissue throughout the show. All right. Like Brian mentioned, I love the open. McKenna Grace as young Theo, who I know he has a great affection for now since he's in the new Ghostbusters movies. I think she's perfectly cast as young Theo. Whose hand was I holding? Such a well-executed and spooky moment of tension. Like I said in the previous episode with Shirley, Theo also does a great job communicating with this little girl. She shows great compassion and asks great questions to figure out who Mr. Smiley is. Uh, I can't remember exactly what this shot was because I did my notes so long ago, but I wrote down, on an unrelated note, Kate Siegel looks incredibly beautiful in this scene. Good job, Mr. Flanagan. You outkicked your cousin. Yes, she my friend. does, pal. <laughs> she's, she's a smoke show. <clears throat> Creepy kid drawings are another staple of horror. The one drew by the foster child was horrifying with Mr. Smiley in the window. And I'm looking forward to the Mr. Smiley reveal later in this episode. I think it's really well executed how it's told really like the sisterhood between Theo and Shirley and Mike continues to impress with these transition shots from young to old and vice versa. Like both you guys just mentioned Theo's power to see things she touches. I think that's one of the coolest like powers that we've seen doing this show. I really like that. The four siblings' different acting personalities, they all shine in this scene discussing sharing the royalties. I've said it many times, but I can't compliment the casting choices enough. They are perfect for this show. Theo has no problem driving to the club, but won't drive to the store to buy no damn groceries, huh? Yeah, I'd have problems too, Charlotte, eating up all my damn turkey. Uh, That's all I got, uh, Dustin. Go ahead. Facts. All right, back in the past, we see Mrs. Dudley scolding Luke for playing with the dumbwaiter and Theo telling her to lighten up. As they walk away, Theo says Mrs. Dudley isn't mean. She's scared. Next, present-day Theo sits in bed uh, writing some patient charts, and she draws a smiley face. Before she closes the chart, we see that it's Kelsey's, and Theo looks befuddled. Young Theo goes to the fridge for a late-night snack, and we see Luke playing in the dumbwaiter again. He's trying to go for a ride and convinces Theo to help him out. He wants to go up, but she accidentally sends him down. At the bottom, Luke sees a ladder and a nasty-ass rat and pleads for Theo to bring him back up. His flashlight flickers, and Luke says there's something down there. A zombie corpse or something like that starts crawling towards him, sending him into a frenzy. He screams alert for his parents, and they're able to get the dumbwaiter working again to send him up. He says a monster grabbed him and ripped his shirt. 
They send Theo to her room and check out the damage and console Luke. Back in present day, sleeping Theo has the blanket pulled off her in bed, and we see a grizzly-looking fella at the foot of her bed. When she turns on the light, there's no one there, and Cheryl knocks on Theo's door. This is when she was going to tell her about Aunt Nell, or tell her about Nell, flashback to two years ago, and we're at Nellie's wedding reception. They're looking for a couple of groomsmen and the maid of honor. She's upstairs getting her cheeks clapped. Nellie and Stephen wonder which of the groomsmen uh, were going to pound town, but they're both wrong. It was Theo. Back in present day, Cheryl and Theo sit on the bed and talking about Nell and how to tell the kids. We cut to the scene from last episode when Nellie's body is getting taken out of the van and Theo leaves. Back to childhood and Theo apologizes to Luke for the dumbwaiter incident and Luke says their parents don't believe him. Theo touches Luke's hand and says she believes him. She says they'll prove it. She goes looking for the ladder that Luke mentioned and finds a trap door in the kitchen. She goes down to have a little look-see and finds a light switch. In the basement, she finds a scrap of Luke's shirt that was torn and a closed door. When she opens it, we transition back to the present and the foster uh, foster home's front door opening where Theo is outside. That's the next set of scenes. Go ahead. So I don't have a lot <coughs> on the rest of these set of scenes for some reason, but I did have a ton on the first one. So kind of going back to the last set of scenes just a little bit, it was pretty cool to me getting to see all of the kids together in that six years earlier bit and kind of see, you know, how they all remember their time for the first time. We get to kind of see that, how they remember their time at, at Hill House. Like we already know from the first two episodes, Shirley and Steven are skeptics while Nellie and Luke were believers. But Theo, even with her quote unquote rogue abilities, she seems to refuse to believe that the ghosts were more than just in her head. So that definitely builds into the theme of the whole entire episode with her having built that wall that we were talking about. But whew, that dumbwaiter scene with Luke in the basement, there's no wonder this dude is so fucked up. Like this basement scene to me was scary as shit. Like that hand coming out from behind the barrel was so reminiscent of the, the signs alien to me. But then like, it, I mean, then we get to see that monster like in between flashes of the flashlight uh, straight to her nightmare where she sees Mr. Smiley. God damn. Like that, that was very effective to me. That was very effective. Um, and then when we get to see Theo's side of finding out about Nell and she talks about being angry, that's kind of the first time like on the nose that we get hit over the face with, like I mentioned last episode, the siblings representing the five stages of grief with Theo obviously being anger. And that's the first time that I think any character really actually says that. But just another great group of scenes to me. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I didn't know what a dumbwaiter was till last year. <laughs> like, I had no idea what it was. <laughs> so, uh, about a year ago, like, hey, what the fuck is this thing? You know now uh, because it's in your house. That's what I was Buddy, please, please. <laughs> it's in your mansion. It's fine. That's how you know. Uh, <laughs> look, uh, a lot more, look, a lot more character building here that we get. Uh, my ass would have been just like Luke, though. I was a fearless little kid. So I'd have been crawling in that thing and wanting to go exploring around down there. Uh, now, one thing I do agree with, I'm not going to fuck with a mouse. I don't fuck with mice and rats. Shout out to Brother Dustin. I know he doesn't either. We do, I'm not fucking fuck. with no mice. So that would have scared the shit out of me anyway. As a skeptic myself, someone, uh, I would have come up with all kinds of excuses in my head while Luke's shirt was ripped. So, you know, when you try to put yourself in the shoes of not an audience member watching it because now we know this stuff is really happening to Luke. But as a parent, I would have been really tried to listen to my kid, but also 
like, ah, okay, yeah, sure, Luke. I'm sure that was something that happened. But just me knowing my brain, I would have tried to excuse that away. So I thought that was realistic. I think, you know, there's parts of of this show that maybe want to villainize the parents. And, and sometimes it's justified, sometimes it's not. Um, I do think that's a great jump scare on Theo there with uh, pulling the covers off. I thought that was really well done. I love this scene where Stephen and Nell find out that Theo is gay. I fucking love it. It's got comedy. It's got heart. It, it has everything you could possibly want. It's a really good scene. It shows the human side of Nell, too. Just Absolutely. like, you know, you're kind of getting to go back and visit her. And, and you know, because we know she's dead. And so we get to go see her while she was alive not that long ago. So you really kind of want to know more, like, hey, what the fuck happened here, right? And so I really loved the scene. I thought it it was a really good way of siblings interacting with each other. This seems to be before everyone hated Steven. Like, just just really good stuff, man. Um, and like you mentioned, each family member handling the complications of someone committing suicide very differently. And I love the way they use that as a narrative plot, for lack of a better term. And like with Theo here, she's – just exploring her anger. Like she's angry at Nell. And that's, you know, a lot of people try to, you know, use that against people, but I think it's a very fair emotion to feel. Uh, and, and I completely understand some people get mad. Some people get sad. Some people are understanding. Some people are confused. And I think they do a really good job kind of touching all those levels. Um, and I just love the connection that I think both younger sisters have with Luke as kids. Like, you get some with now in the next episode, and you get some with Theo here. Like, they really – like, I love how all of them have a little connection. And I think it it makes for their older self – it makes their older selves a little more interesting. Last thing, we talked about the shot transitions. <laughs> the basement door into modern day with uh, Theo opening the door to the house, I think that was really well done. I love that shot. So, uh, really good set of scenes. I Probably one of my favorite episodes. It's not my favorite episode in the season, but it is one of my favorites. Just because of the storytelling, and I love the character of Theo. Yeah, this is, this is a good episode. Uh, Theo is a boss little girl standing up to Miss Dudley. I love the line delivery and facial acting McKenna shows, telling Luke she's not mean. She's scared. I really like that. Every time I see young Luke, I only see this TikToker named Honest Personal Finance. Y'all go look that guy up. He's got these giant glasses that hang right on the edge of his nose, and I can't I can't see young Luke without seeing that guy anymore. Julian and McKenna are exceptional, showing realistic fear in this dumbwaiter scene. I do feel like the parents are a little harsh on Theo. I mean, they're both just kids. I mean, kids are dumb. You don't have to yell at her like that. Excellent jump scare with the like y'all mentioned with the Mister Smiley pulling Theo's blanket away. I thought that was great. Nelly, whew, looking beautiful at her wedding, and this moment of humor where she and Stephen find out it was Theo partaking in Taco Tuesday with the bridesmaid got a good chuckle out of me. Theo and Shirley are great discussing how to handle telling the kids what happened to Nelly. I'm sure I sound like a broken record complimenting the acting, but what can I say? It's exceptional. If it was bad acting, we would keep harping on it. Theo should have been a house inspector for profession. How the hell was this secret hatch not found by the inspector? And I thought it was great, great camera work by a cinematographer, and I hope I don't butcher this guy's last name, Michael Femignari. Circling young Theo in the wine cellar. I thought that was fantastic. Uh, that's all I got, Dustin. It said Taco Tuesday. <laughs> if you know, you know. Yeah. Theo apologizes for dropping in unannounced and asks if Kelsey is home. She's at school. She has to look in their basement. 
As she walks around downstairs, she takes off her gloves and starts touching things. When she walks by a couch, she freezes in her tracks when she touches it. She lays on the couch and starts having a fit like she's experiencing something awful. When she looks up, she sees a smiley face design in the knots of the wood overhead. Next, she slowly walks towards the door and she shakes the foster dad's hand barehanded before she leaves. She holds on longer than normal and uh, compliments his smile. In her uh, inner Jeep, she tells someone on the phone to trust her and that she's pretty sure the guy will confess. Pretty disturbing and gut-wrenching development in the story. Back in Theo's childhood, she shows Olivia a book she found in the basement. Olivia commends Theo for her bravery, but when she touches Theo's hand, Theo looks concerned. When she looks back at her mom, her face is all bloodied and battered. Theo screams and backs away. Olivia is fine in reality, and we cut back to present day. The foster dad is getting arrested. Good, fucking bastard. Back in the past, Mr. Dudley and Hugh look at the basement trapdoor, and Olivia asks Theo how she's finding all this cool shit. Olivia tells Theo she has visions when she gets migraines. Her mom had them too, and she wonders if the girls have these sensitivities. Olivia gives Theo a pair of gloves and says they'll help. It's a touching mother-daughter moment. Flash forward, and Theo, Steve, Theo, Stephen gives Theo a check from his book sales before heading out. She corrects some details in the book, and he deflects and asks what she's doing with the money. She's getting her PhD. Flash forward again, this time to the present, and Theo heads to the basement at Cheryl's. That's the next set of scenes. Go ahead. My son just watched Jackass for the first time the other day in the car on his phone. So you saying Steve-O just kind of freaking just made me laugh. Just there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, back to this, the transition from one mystery to another here at the start of this, going from like the tension of the basement in that, uh, in the house back to our special victims unit episode was a little jarring. Like I had to be like, okay, okay, okay shit, we're back here. I mean, not to question the great Flanny, but man, I could have stayed in that basement a little bit longer. Just saying. Uh, but with that said, it was pretty cool to see the pieces come together in the case of that little girl. And it was pretty cool seeing the the mirroring with Theo trying to find the truth in the basement in both the past and the present. Um, and Kate Siegel does such an amazing job of acting and just showing the emotion of what she's what she's going through while she's laying on that couch. I mean, we see literally nothing but her face and her emotions. And yet we know exactly what she's going through and what happened. You know, and another part that really stood out to me is when the cops were driving the foster dad off and they pull up next to Theo in her Jeep. As soon as they drive off, like tears start running down her face and just like just the release and the exhale that she gives, it really felt real. That's, that's it. It felt really real, very emotional. I mean, that to me was just, more top-notch acting from the show like Nico's been harping on. And lastly, Theo walking into Shirley's basement at the end here felt, to me, like the end of the episode. Like it could have ended right here and, and I would have been perfectly fine. I'm not complaining about the rest, but I'm not sure it was fully needed. I, don't, I felt like I got all of the closure from this set of scenes right here. Now you touched on it, and also Dustin touched on it in the scene-by-scene. The discovery of who Mr. Smiley is and what Mr. Smiley was is fucking heartbreaking, man. It is a gut-wrenching, you know, turn in the story. You mentioned being down in the basement longer, yes. But I do think this this plot line here adds a little bit of depth, a little bit of, I hate to keep using the word character, but it does make the character of Theo stronger, a little bit deeper. Like, that connective tissue that we keep talking about between the past and the present, like, she has 
some experiences. You mentioned the basement, how those things mirror each other. And the acting from Kate Siegel is fucking incredible on this couch. Like, I can't express that enough. Even though we're finding out in real time something awful, that you have to come to the realization while she's, you know, while Theo is on the couch almost not reenacting this, but like feeling what this girl has been feeling, it's incredible. Like, it's just a, it, it's hard to, it's hard to look at, hard to turn away from kind of thing because the performance, I think, is so damn strong. Um, and just, you know, really, really good. Uh, you know, I know I called Olivia Crane a nut job, but then there's these scenes where she kind of seems and comes off as a good mom in a way. And so I'm really torn throughout the whole series. Like, you know, do I like her? Do I not like her? Like, and we'll get into that as the series goes on. But man, I just, it, it makes my feelings for her complicated. I will say Steve has these instances where he's an ass and I don't want to like him. But at the same time, I understand cashing in on the book deal, man. Like, Hey, sometimes we got to grab that money while we can. Like I totally get it. And there's another scene in the next episode as well. That makes me go, God damn it. I don't want to like you. Don't, don't, don't make me like you. Uh, and, but that's, you know, that's good acting, I guess. But all in all to me, this set of scenes and the last set of scenes, but you touched on, don't know if they're hundred percent necessary, but it's more fantastic acting from Siegel. Like, in this set and the last set that really keep my interest the whole time. So great fucking set of scenes. I think it's very moving and impactful. Just to touch on something you were talking about, Mike, like you question if you want to like a character. I think that means it's good writing. Like the characters you like have flaws. Like who wants a, like who wants a perfect character? Like you want somebody who's likable, but they obviously have some issues. Like that makes them interesting. Like from a viewership standpoint, but, and just uh, to touch on that some too, like even with Luke or with Steve, like you're getting only bits and pieces of the information. And then like later in the episode, yes. you go, you either get more or the real story, or you actually hear a conversation you didn't know happened. And you're like, Oh shit. Like I didn't, I, you know, I, I shouldn't have felt that way. Like I love, yeah. right. you're right. Yeah, the me too. Is great. Exactly. Like, like Luke, for example, like in episode one, you think, Oh look, the the drug he done relapses again. But in episode four, yeah. you find out he's actually trying to do a good thing. So uh, I agree, hundred percent. But yeah. Theo, she's taking her gloves off, and I've used <laughs> like a sprained ankle. She ain't playing no more. I basically <laughs> adopted that phrase and plan to try and use it every time I do scene analysis. Holy shit! Seeing Mister Smiley in the boards of the floor and piecing together what's going on, I thought it was horrifying. But bro, messed up shaking Theodora Crane's hand. And this came across my mind, but being an actor, actress has to be weird, right? Hear me out. You find out you get cast in a Mike Flanagan Netflix show, and your role is foster dad child molester. As long as the check clears, right? <laughs> Excellent yeah. jump scare with Theo seeing her mother's bloody head, a horrifying foreshadowing, possibly. Theo tearing up as the foster dad is taken away by the police. I can only imagine how emotionally taxing a job like hers is. I love this moment where we find out how Theo got her gloves. I thought that was a beautiful mother-daughter moment. And oh shit, Theo is being risky as hell taking this money from Steven. I do love how she calls Steven out and all the things he got wrong. But like I, but like I just said, as long as the check clears, right? And that's all I got, Dustin. Looking forward to the hey, finale. Hey, really quick, Dustin. It's funny you mentioned that, Nico, because I had a very similar thought uh, while watching the, the Lighthouse, which, you know, that's a different topic. But man, like, when you read these scripts and accept these roles, like this is what I'm doing. This is really what I'm going to do. Cause, but I go back and you can listen to this at bumprop there.com. 
where we interviewed James Drew Courtney, and he talks about getting in the mindset to play Michael Myers, which is weird to me because when we watch or I watch a Michael Myers movie, typically I'm having a good time. This is a slasher film. Michael Myers has been around forever. But for him to be able to play the character, it's to go to a deep, dark place to get in the right mindset to play that character. So that's what I think of when I'm like, hey, man, like you said, is the check going to clear? Is the check going to clear? Those would be my number two. Like, hey, man, I'd play a small bit part for, you know, making Dustin uh, Franklin money. That'd be all right. <laughs> anyway. Uh, all right. Let's go. Uh, <laughs> let's wrap it up here. Theo turns on the light and goes into the room with Nellie's body. She recites John eleven thirty five and takes her gloves off. She touches Nellie's forehead and falls to the ground and, so- and sobs. Next, we see Theo sitting outside drinking some whiskey straight from the bottle, and Kevin comes out to check on her. She says she found the checkbook for a secret account and tells him to make up a mistress or something that'll piss her off less than the truth. Her one-night stand from before pulls up now, and she's out. Inside, she's trying to get to action, but old girl wants to talk. She says she feels weird about their situation. Theo trauma dumps all about the Kelsey stuff and almost spills the beans about her uh, touch gift. It works. Girl doesn't want to talk anymore. She gets some sympathy poon. We flash back to childhood and Hugh is telling Theo to get Nellie and Luke to the car. And when he grabs Theo's arm, she sees visions of awful things and yells not to touch her. Back to present day, Theo's romping the sheets and she tells her uh, fuck body to touch her. And the episode ends. That's the ending. What do you guys think? I don't have much. And like I said, I wasn't sure a hundred percent that we needed this set of scenes, but the start, especially when Theo first gets in there with Nellie's body and the camera zooms in as she's removing her gloves, you're like, Oh shit. Okay. We're about to get something crazy. And it, it definitely raises the tension for sure. But again, Siegel does such an amazing job of giving us all the emotions she's feeling and her monologue, even as her booty call shows up. That monologue was amazing. So that is all I had on the set of scenes. Not a whole lot. Just great closure to another great episode, I felt like. Yeah, same here. I don't have a lot. (laughs) But I will just say the acting, once again, from Siegel is fantastic. Um, She probably gives her and Pedretti probably give the best acting performances throughout the series. I'm not saying that no one else is good because that's not true. But, like, when we're talking about the strong performances, it's – Kate Siegel and Victoria Pedretti, in my opinion, um, man, I, the the monologue when she's kind of like you said, trauma dumping Dustin. I think it's just really solid work, man. The dialogue is well written, and like you mentioned, which is I know this is terrible, but whatever. Same thought I had. It's like, okay, yeah, that's nice. Shut the hell up. Let's get it on. Like, it's, like I know that's not what she did, but that's how it comes across sometimes. Because hey, man, sometimes that's just. That's what you do. Eh, I shouldn't have asked about your day. Let's move on. Um, and I do like at the very end here that we're getting another look at the last night at Hill House. Like, you know, just little little bits and pieces of a tease there. I thought that was a nice touch. All right. Uh, nice touch by Kate taking the gloves off so slowly and meticulously. It seeming, it's seemingly knowing she's going to see something horrific when she touches Nellie's corpse. I know her back is hurting, though, from hitting that table like that, but man, what an emotional reaction. Excellently acted by Kate Siegel. More foreshadowing by Theo telling Kevin to lie about the checkbook being about a mistress and not something else, perhaps? Uh, Like you guys mentioned, I don't have much either. I've only got a few more bullet points, but I bet Trish instantly regrets asking Theo 
how her day was once hearing about the nine-year-old girl being molested by her foster dad. Like y'all mentioned, just uh, get in the sheets and just get it on. Like we don't need to be asking about our days sometimes. A great way to end the show, us seeing young Theo's vision once her father touches her arm to her, telling Trish, Trish her love interest to touch her. Beautifully written, acted, and shot. Something you can say about just about every scene of this show. All right. Uh, do you guys have any just overall thoughts? I've got a couple of things because since I did the SEMO scene. All right. No, go ahead. I'll man. go ahead. So to me, this episode was a little up and down. It had a lot of positives like the acting, writing, and I still love, 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 love the transitions between scenes when we cut from the past to the present and vice versa. Like I love that. But the added wrinkle of Theo's gift almost loses me a little bit. Like I feel like this show has a lot going on and a bit of an identity crisis. Like we've got zombie monsters and now a dead zone element with Theo being a female Johnny Smith. And I just don't know if it's needed, honestly, but I'm, I'm still invested and I'm still interested. It's just to me, it's very busy as far as everything's going on. Like I, I when I hear the, th- the title of the show, the haunting of Hill house, I'm thinking of haunting. So all the stuff we saw in the first couple episodes, right on board with that. It's a haunting and, and these, Demons from the past are tormenting these people. But now she's fucking supernatural? I don't know. I hear you. It is a very busy... Yeah. It's a very busy watch the first time through. You having never seen it, like, I remember how I felt the first time watching it through. I'm like, well, I've already made it this far. I might as well finish, and I'm glad that I do. And I think you will be, too, because everything does tie back up. Um, But I do think it is very busy. And the back and forth between the present and the past doesn't help that either. In my opinion, like just well, keep going back and forth. Like, yeah. Snip, snap, snip, snap. I don't mind that. I don't mind the, uh, the back and forth. And I don't mind that there, you know, there's 16 kids and counting and we're transitioning between all these different storylines. Like that part's fine. It's just the superpowers is like, uh, come on, what are we doing here? Like we're, sure. we're adding it. I get it though. I mean, it's not crazy. that There's superpowers in a show that's about, a haunting, haunting and all these ghosts and whatnot. Like that's fine. It's just a bit busy. I mean, it, it's kind of even hard to just answer because like Mike said, like I've seen the whole thing, so I know how it ties all together. So I'm just going to hold off and just, we'll just let it play out for the next few episodes yeah, and we'll fair. revisit it all. Uh, Y'all got any fun facts for episode three? For if you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place, and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need indeed. Coming to scene by scene for episode four. All right, I'll take over now. The episode starts with young Luke showing Abigail the drawing of the monster from the basement. He asks if she believes him as the wind rustles the leaves. Present day Luke is at a group therapy session in rehab. He's listening to a blind veteran tell his story. He says the girl's eyes melted in a fire. 
He's haunted by the young Iraqi girl he saw die. That caused him to relapse. One night on an acid trip, he used a knitting needle and blinded himself to not see anything. <laughs> and I don't blame Luke, but he doesn't want to follow up his story after that testimony. He locks eyes with Joey and they smile. Two days ago, Luke takes a chip and tells the crowd he's 90 days clean. Young Luke is playing with toy soldiers in his treehouse and shows his dad the drawing of the monster in the basement. Hugh plays it off and Luke says the house is bad. Olivia draws Nellie out from hiding, offering her some buttons, and Luke asks for a hat. Hugh says big boys know the difference between real and make-believe. The hat is enormous, and Nellie says he loves it. She knows. It's a twin thing. Hugh holds Olivia as she tells him her deja vu she had of the room and kids. She tells Hugh to move the, those ropes by the stairs. She only sees accidents. Present Luke and Joey talk in his room as he discusses his transgressions. Joey says there aren't enough pages in that notebook for all the shit she's done bad. Luke notices something's bothering her. He praises her nine months of sobriety, but she won't say what's wrong. Luke says it's a twin thing why his sister believes in him. Joey leaves the room for the ladies bunk. All right, Brian, that's the opening set of scenes. What do you think? All right, so, and this may be for the summary, but I'm going to say it here. I have to say this was probably my least favorite episode yet. I mean, it's nothing against yeah. really anything. It's just like Luke is one of my least favorite of the siblings. Up to this point, I will give it that precursor uh, up to this point. And I, I also, I do want to shout out friend of the show, Julian Hilliard, once again, who did our intro for us. Super sweet kid. But speaking of actors that played Luke, uh, I'll, you mentioned Nico in the first uh, last episode about how young Luke, I guess Julian Hilliard, reminds you of somebody. But I just want to point out how Oliver Cohen, who plays older Luke, looks just like friend of the show John Abrahams from Scary Movie to Me. Listen to his interview, don't go out there.com. But yeah, anyway, this addiction stuff just isn't interesting for me to watch. Like the story we get in the group opening from the veteran touching, yeah, but it took so damn long to get through. Like, I, don't, I just wasn't a fan. Is it important to the story and character development? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess so. It, you know, as I've, I've gone ahead and, and watched five and six, and I, I will say, I'll say it again, I have seen this series. But as I was telling Nico before we started recording this, I just don't remember a ton of it. So it's almost like I'm going through it like all you know, brand new. And, you know, so five and six almost makes me feel like maybe I didn't need so much of this episode. It was just kind of mad to me, if that makes sense. Uh, Anna Inger Rich plays Joey, plays her very well. Uh, really seems right in her wheelhouse with her past acting credits. She's been full on TV with SWAT. Great movie, by the way, with Colin Farrell and Sam Jackson fucking love that movie but she's in the tv show not that but the last movie she was in uh anchorman 2 i hated it but it wasn't her fault she's just she's great or in this show i feel like uh not a whole lot in this group of scenes just kind of nice to see what the others thought of luke and our perception of him this whole time might have been wrong kind of like we touched on earlier i was gonna I say anchorman 2 was kind of funny it wasn't great but it was kind of funny man dude that's one of the weirdest films to me because the first 45 minutes are fucking great and hilarious. And then whenever he gets like lost in the wilderness, like that, it really starts to suck at that point. <laughs> it's really bad. Yeah. It's really bad. Uh, but yeah, so to, to piggyback off of what you said there, Brian, I agree. It's probably my least favorite episode, maybe of the whole series. Um, I mean, it doesn't make it bad. It just makes it a little slow. Like I feel like even though I care about the character of Luke, I do. I'm interested we do kind of drag it out, but I will say, to me, it does 
it kind of shows the person that Luke is. You know, he has an addiction. It's a very serious issue. And like the suicide with Nell, we get to see how each family or how a lot of the family members react to his addiction. Maybe Luke isn't the person we thought he was in the first episode. So I think it's important character development. But like you said, the episode does drag just a smidge. I do like how we're connecting back to no one ever believing Luke. And it ties up at the very end of the episode as well. Like no one, even when he was a kid, ever believed anything this kid said. Like, and it's still going on now, especially because he's an addict and that's the way that some of his family views him. Um, you know, like you said, the veteran, you know, it was a good monologue, but it just really was long. Like, I feel like we could have shortened that up just a smidge. I will say the minute that I see in this opening here, Luke and Joey lock eyes. I'm like, oh, God, this is toxic as hell already, man. This is some future sending out a text toxic. I don't like any of this at all. Uh, I will say episode three didn't have much mom and dad connection. I feel like we're at least getting a little bit of the good side of that couple here in this episode. You know, they're playful. They have some feelings for each other. They're touching. Like, that was kind of nice to see. Um, yeah, uh, again, last thing, and I'm going to, I'm, I, I feel like I'm a hypocrite because I compliment it later and I mentioned how I like that back and forth storytelling, but every now and then I almost wish they had done this season like it where like half the season was the childhood and the other half was the adulthood. Like I would have thought that would not better, not better in any way, just maybe different and interesting to see how they would have told the story that way. But you know, because there is sometimes this episode where I'm like, I'm more interested in the adult. Like I'm more interested in the adult themes and the adulthood uh, traumas and stuff that everyone's going through, but that's all I had. All right. So we open with Luke talking to a creepy little girl. So another added layer of, of what all is going on. And then it's really rough stuff from the blind vet in the meeting. I don't blame Luke for not wanting to follow that. Like that's tough. Good on Luke for getting that 90 day clean token. Uh, though and uh, shout out to everyone who's in recovery continue fighting the good fight uh but here's my thing when kid nelly says it's a twin thing is this the first time that we find out that they're twins like i don't remember it being mentioned before now and we're in we're in episode four then adult luke says it it seems like it's a late addition to the storyline so michael i'm glad what you said there about how you kind of wish they would have shot it like all the childhood stuff and then switch over and we get the adult stuff. I don't think he knew what direction he was going to take this show at times. I think he was making shit up on the fly because the, the twin thing is, you know, that's the name of this episode and that's a recurring theme in this episode, but it seems like it was shoehorned in. Like it was a last minute addition and they beat it over the head in this episode. That's a gripe that I have with this episode is how over the top, like you can mention that we're twins once and then, if they just set up things in the first three episodes where something happens and the other one picks up on it, or they can feel each other's things, then this episode almost doesn't need to exist because we we've established their connection. So I don't know. It did. I didn't love it. 1202 and Luke wakes up in a scare. He sees Nellie in his room and she says, go and disappears. Young Luke and Nellie are playing with buttons, catching them in his hat through a shoot. They hear voices from upstairs and they're both scared. Luke goes in the room to investigate, and they talk, and he blames it on Theo. Luke hears a spooky voice and sees a ghostly woman in the reflection and runs out. Luke awakes and finds a note under his pillow from Joey. She ran away in the night. 
The instructor used this as an example of why not to get into any kind of relationships while getting clean. You can't hang your sobriety on someone else's. Luke storms out needing a breath of fresh air. The instructor discovers Luke has escaped out a window as well. Luke leaves Nellie a voicemail on the moment he had last night and asks if she's okay. He asks her to leave messages at the center. He'll be back there tonight. He sits on a bench looking at the other homeless and drug users, staring at a man standing backwards with a top hat on until a dog randomly appears barking at him relentlessly. Young Luke wakes in the night and looks in the hall, frightened by an extremely tall man in a coat, hat, and cane. He goes back in the room and hides under the bed. The man enters the room, hovering the floor, and looks around. Luke's nervous breathing alarms the ghost, and he looks at Luke, and he screams in fear. Back to the present, Luke finds Joey, and she asks how he knew where to find her. He hugs her and calls the center. The instructor says they can't stay. They only have beds for people who want to get well. She hangs up, and Joey asks what's wrong with his neck. She asks why he followed him against crying, apologizing. Luke has an idea, and she asks if he can get money. She suggests calling his brother. Luke says he'll be there for her all the way, getting clean, just like she was for him. He asks if she has any drugs left, and he says this should get us most of the way as he sees the man in the hat again. All right, Brian, this next set of scenes. What would you think, sir? Not really a whole lot on this one either. Um, until that jump scare with the old woman saying, Clara, while little Luke is up in that room. Woo! And great job there, especially with the reflection. And then that jump scare with that damn dog while we're focused on the man in the bowler hat and the dog. Jesus Christ, Flanny. But can we just all agree that the ghost in the bowler hat is a fucking asshole? Like, yeah, he's scary in the Slender Man type of way, but he just floats his happy little ass into the twins' room, steals a hat from a little kid, which, why does a ghost need a physical hat anyway? I don't know, fuck that guy. And how does that work anyway? Like, with logistics aside, the asshole decides to come back and just look at him under the bed. Like, what a dick ghost. Anyway, like I said, not a lot on this set of scenes either, really. Just, it's not that I'm not interested. I, I, I totally am. But it's just, I guess the first three were so strong. It's a bit of a letdown episode for me so far. No, I said this one's hard to take notes on too, man. Like, it's a lot of talking and dialogue without, like, a lot of the action of the first three, in my opinion. Uh, Phil back as Luke is doing so well. And I don't want him seeing visions of Nelly in his head like that. That nah, come on, man. Um, mm, I will wait, say the French you're saying, horn. You're saying those visions with Nelly are all in my head. You think about it over and over again. Or it's all. Hey, it's only just a dream. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Okay. I, I swore off puns on the show. I thought, but maybe not. Maybe I'll bring them back and really annoy the audience. They loved it when we did that. Um, <laughs> The French horn jump scare here, or the horn jump scare, I thought was really well done. Uh, I thought it was a fun scene. Um, I think the rehab stuff is good character development. Like, it's not that it's not. It's written really well, and I certainly think Luke is a sympathetic character because, like I mentioned, no one believes him. No one listens to him. So he has that mental issue, and now he's an addict. Like, he's he's struggling, <laughs> and I want to see him do well for sure. Oh, you mentioned the dog. That's the muddiest-looking fucking dog I've ever seen. I'm sure Nico would have... Love to be chased by one of them when he was delivering mail. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> My bad. I'm sorry. Uh, and again, this the scene where Kid Luke is hiding and it's dark and it's I think it's very intense. Uh, just off of what he turns into, I think it's really good. Um, the floating man, though. Hey, man, I, I'll shit my pants quicker than I did on Dustin Sports, buddy. That is some scary shit. If I saw that in real life, 
I, I, nope, nope. I am dropping a mud monkey right there. Uh, but anyway, sometimes you got to get through. I would have, I would have sold if he had any drugs left of her drugs. I would have sold those drugs to get money. That's what I would have done. Fuck those other addicts. I'm in recovery. All right. Uh, the whole you're scared. I know because I'm scared. It's like a bit much. Like, okay, fam, you're really pushing the Wonder Twin shit in this one. Like, I don't know. Like I said, I just, I wish that it had been established earlier on so they didn't have to beat us over the head with it in this episode. Then the other people in rehab, they're dicks. Basically guilt tripping Luke for Joey leaving. Like, fuck off. Damn, that was tough. Uh, the dog barking at Luke in the park got me. Like, I'm mad that it did, but it got me. It was so quiet and focused on the guy in the hat that looked like the ghost from his childhood. And then... This show doesn't really use jump scares. doesn't really rely on jump scares. So I failed the test, man. It got me. And uh, why the fuck would a ghost that floats need a walking cane? What the fuck is that about? Like the walking cane, like you were mentioning, why does the ghost need a hat? Why does it need a cane? The cane drug on the ground while he floated. That was stupid. I hated that. Uh, And then I'm going to get you clean and I'm going to be right here beside you. You got any more of them drugs? Addiction is a sickness, man. That was terrible to see. I hated that. But, uh, yeah, this is, uh, you know, kind of a mixed bag for me as well. Hey, man, the top hat and the cane, he was a man of his time. Yeah, see? Gotta have my top hat and my cane. Yeah, that's what it was. Why, did, why didn't the cane float? Like, pick that bitch up. You ain't got to drag it. Honestly, I thought that was funny. <laughs> to see him floating in the cane dragging. I thought it was funny. It wasn't good character work, but it was funny. Luke and Joey are dropped off in a taxi, and they walk down the sidewalk talking about he and Nellie's twin relationship. Luke says Joey reminds him of Nellie somewhat, how she's always believed in him, just like Nellie. Luke complains of being cold and asks Joey to hang back, doesn't want Lee to see her eyes. Luke rings the doorbell, and they hug. He tells her he's 90 days clean and asks, where's Steve? She tells him she and Steve separated and doesn't want to discuss why. He asks to borrow some money or stay at their place, and she turns him down. Luke has a flashback of the night they had a fun dinner with Stephen and Lee. Stephen looks tense and Joey asks him about being a writer and where he gets his ideas from. Joey compliments Luke and says he's a really good writer as well. Joey asks when they're going to have kids and it gets awkward. Stephen asks her what's different this time. Joey says she has more support and giving more support. Stephen asks if Luke likes her. He says he admires her. Stephen calls her slick. Luke defends her, but Stephen plays it off. He says he's out of chances and he wants him to be careful. Stephen is tired of being burned by Luke. Luke barges out. Luke barges out furious. We see Luke breaking into Stephen's apartment, taking the iPad and camera. He goes to leave, and this is when Stephen catches him on the stairs. This isn't what it looks like. Luke shows Joey the money and gives her a protein bar. Joey notices Luke tweaking some, and she thanks him for looking after her. The two kiss in in the alley, and she says, "Be back in a flash." All right, Bryce. The next set of scenes. What do you think? I kind of find myself at a. Uh shortage of words for yet again in this set of scenes but you know i brought up anna anger rich as uh joey before but in this set of scenes especially at the dinner table during her speech like when steven asked about the definition of insanity and what's different rich does such a, a very very good standout job there i uh, also really <clears throat> like the fact that you get the warning from steven here like and at first this is kind of what we were talking about earlier where you're like quit being a dick steve and but then we find out later that he ends up being right. And no matter how much we like Joey, how much we truly were, quote, like disarmed by her speech and what we've seen before, she really was what Steve ended up saying. 
Uh, but on the flip side, Luke isn't what we expected. You know, two episodes, we still see him from, uh, or st- see him stealing from Steve, but now we get to see the other side of that as Flanagan back to the future twos it, like I've called it in the past. Um, and I do, I do have to say like, as much as I've, I've said the character development drug a tad for me in this episode, I'll have to say that it hurt when Joey bailed. Like that's a feeling you probably wouldn't have felt either. If, if you didn't go through those ups and downs of the episode with Luke. So bravo to that. Making me eat my words too here at the end. Ah, they said the name of the episode in the show. Uh Oh, they did the thing. They did that one thing. Everyone loves, uh, uh, Man, that's a little too on the nose for me. I wish they hadn't done the twin thing. I wish they hadn't done that. Um, again, you mentioned it there. They're doing a good job of showing the complexity and layers there is to having someone in your life that's an addict, a struggling addict at that. Like they're doing a really good job showing that and fleshing that out. Whether we agree that it makes for a really good episode in this series or not is, you know, that's fine. But but I do think they do a good job. Maybe screwing up the name here, but Samantha Sloyan. Right? To have that small character in this show. But as Dustin knows, in Midnight Mass, she fucking kicks ass as the biggest bitch in the world. Oh, my God. I hate her in that show. But in this show, you know, small character. But it was nice to see her again here. Just looks so different in this show than she did in Midnight Mass. Oh, you're Mass. right. I completely forgot she was – that was the same person. Like, until now, you just dude, said it's that. It's hard. Dude, they, wow. well, they age her in Midnight Mass. That's one thing. Yeah, but uh, she is so good. You're right. You're right. Oh, man. Whew. Really good in that show. Um, I really like the scene at the dinner table. Probably the best scene in this episode, for sure. You know, just the interaction between Steve and Luke, and he's not really buying it. And like you said, in the moment, I'm like, what a fucking asshole. Like, man, you've got all this stuff within your family. They've been through a lot. Show a little, you know, show a little sensitivity, man, to your family. Like, I think that would be good to at least give someone a chance, but he's not buying it. And as we come to find out, he's absolutely right. For not buying it. And I I love how we flip this, you know, the thing with Luke stealing, the reasoning behind it. And it does hurt when Joey bails. I mean, she bailed quicker than a dad in the 1940s going out to get a bag of cigarettes. See ya. I'll be back in a little bit, honey. And moves to the other side of town. The kids never see him again. That's how fast Joey bailed. Uh, just, just when they kissed, I'm like, oh, man, this isn't going to end well. I know it. And it did. So I actually think this is probably the best set of scenes in the episode, in my opinion. Uh, but again, we're, we are at the point where I'm kind of ready to get to the end of this episode. Yeah. Same, but series, um, more of the, it's a twin thing. Crap. I don't want to keep harping on it. And I get this name of the episode, but God, it just, it's so forced. The flashback was tough to see just two months ago. Joey told him that they have it all. And the only thing to do now is fill the house with kids. And then a month later, they're split up. Life comes at you fast, man. That's tough. Uh, and then last thing I have, Steve was, so harsh to Luke, but who knows how many times he tried to coddle him. Like maybe tough love was all that was left. And so, you know, you, you got to toe that line. I know dealing with personal experience, like sometimes you can't be nice to people who are uh, addicts. They need the hard reality and, and tough love and the truth. But um, otherwise it becomes enabling. But not a bad set of scenes, though. Some really powerful stuff in there. All right, guys, here's the ending. Luke calls for Joey waiting in the alley and notices she took the money. He chases after her and stops to warm up by a burn barrel. Luke sees the man in the hat at a distance. Back to Luke talking to the crowd about 90 days clean. He says it's taken him 10 years to make 90 days clean, and it's always step four where he fails. 
we see flashbacks of him getting jumped as he tells his his story of his mother's suicide at six years old and living with their aunt. He expected his mom, and this is this this shit really hits me hard. He expected his mom to come back every night. He stared out the window, hoping one of those headlights would be his mom coming back. He says other things from being a kid came back. That's why he started using. As we see Luke continue to see the man in the hat, he gets choked up and thanks his caseworker Paige and Joey for their support. Luke's on the phone with Paige, saying he couldn't help Joey. And she says to come back, I need to talk to you. Steven is there and she and Steven agree to pick him up. Young Luke wakes up seeing Nellie sitting up. She says she saw the bent neck lady again. He gets in bed with her and Nellie says, mommy and daddy don't believe me. Luke says he knows she's real. Luke sets up seven buttons to represent the family members and has Nellie count the buttons touching them. That keeps you safe, but you might have to do it a lot. Luke is walking, counting his steps to seven repeatedly. He walks away and the man in the hat appears following him. Luke cries and turns around, seeing his mother in the hat saying, come home, and her eyes shine bright. Stephen and Paige show up in the brother's hug, in the brother's hug, excuse me. Luke cries and apologizes. He says it feels like withdrawal, but he didn't use. Stephen says, it's Nell. She's dead. Luke is devastated hearing it, it's suicide. Luke rubs his neck saying, Stevie, it wasn't suicide. Brian, that's the ending. What'd you think? I mean, look, you definitely can't help but feel for Luke, especially like through this set of scenes. The man got kicked out of treatment for helping somebody. He loses any goodwill with Steven, we think at this point anyway, for some money. Gets fucked over by Joey, gets his ass kicked and his shoes taken. I know Nico is hurt the most about those damn shoes. Um, But Bowler Cap goes, decides to then continue to be an asshole, even at Luke's lowest point. Fuck that dude, man. God damn. It's another low ending for the crew, but John Abrahams, I mean, Oliver Jackson Cohen does a great job himself, really cements his character, especially with that last addiction speech that he gives. But after four episodes, I'm ready to stop Back to the Future 2 it and seeing the same scenes intersect from different perspectives. You know, as awesome as that's been for sure, but I'm ready to start seeing new things moving forward with the series, and, and I'm very glad that we do get that. Definitely the weakest of all the episodes, in my opinion. Doesn't mean it's bad. By any means, I guess, that's what I'm trying to say. But it's definitely the weakest. Also really missed those transitions that we got in the yeah. in, in the first three episodes. They were used so many times and were so standout and good in those first three, especially episode three. And I found myself really missing them in this one. I do, Brian, I do wonder what the editing in this show looked like at first. Because I do feel like this episode about Luke could have been the stuff in this episode could have been splintered off into multiple episodes, sprinkled in with other stuff going on. Like, I do think this stuff is important information for Luke's character, but maybe not a whole episode. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like your, your favorite show giving a whole episode to like us, you know, not, you know, maybe not the most interesting character. You know what I mean? Just it's like, Oh, okay. Well, that was fine. You, you know, I mean, I just think this is good stuff. I just don't know if it's worthy of its own episode. Like, and every show has that. Like, I, go ahead, Nico. No, I'm just going to follow with you, what you're saying. Like, I agree with you. Like, just looking at IMDb's episode guide, like, episode eight is only 43 minutes. This episode yeah. could have been shorter. I don't dislike sure. it as much as you guys, but I do agree that the addiction storyline is probably the least interesting because, I mean, it's more sad than anything because you're, like, attached to Julian Hilly, you know, the little kid. Yeah. Now he's relapsed sure. and. Yeah. Living a horrible yeah. life is, you know, siblings hate him or don't hate him, but they're constantly disappointed. Basically. This could have been, this could have been like a 45 minute episode instead of yeah. 53. Cut out some of the stuff. 
But I mean, I, I enjoy it. I'm pretty sure they established a twin thing. Maybe not to the extent they should have, but I don't know. I think Nelly's episode next episode might make this a little better too, though. Yeah. And I, I remember I what I was so. going to say. I was going to say the point, like, like we just talked about, like every, every sibling gets an episode themselves. And I almost feel like he started writing them and he got like, okay, down the siblings. And cause three was so damn good too with, with Theo. And then I, I felt like once he got to Luke, it was just almost like, well, shit, I've got to keep doing this now. Even though, like you said, Nellie's was so good, but Nellie's is almost like just wrapping everything else yeah. up that yeah. we've already seen. It's not necessarily her own backstory. Like Luke's is, if that makes sense. I feel like Luke's episode would have been better to lead off with almost. Because it's so story and writing driven, uh, then you could have really kind of had a slow build to everyone else's more more interesting, more craziness, for lack of a better term. So, uh, no, I mean, I understand, like, every character needed its own episode. I just, I don't know, maybe I would have edited it a little differently, like Nico said. Just maybe cut down that time to about 40 minutes, 43 minutes or so, and then call it there. Uh, really quick, I know that she's an addict, but God damn, I hate Joey here, man. Like, you know, we're pulling for it, and she kind of slaps us in the face. Uh, fuck, I just hate it, man. Um, I do like that we get a good callback, and I think it's a good monologue um, to Luke's 90-day speech. Or Like, I really like that scene. Like, that is a strong, well-acted scene. I'm glad it's in this episode, and I do think it makes me more aware of the kind of character that Luke is. Like, I think he's a good guy. It's been in some bad shit. Like it, it does happen. It can happen to anybody. And I and I just think he's a good dude. And he was a good kid too. He's shown here being a good little brother. You know, a good brother uh, to Nelly. Like that is really good stuff. Like I, I, I love the parallel. And we, we finally get a little bit of the mirroring that I don't think that we were getting in this episode that we've gotten in the first three. Uh, and here we go. Didn't want to like Steve, and now I do. You know, like he's clearly cares about his brother. Shows tough love. And, you know, really goes to his rehab facility to try to find him to let him know about the death of Nelly. It's just a gut-wrenching watch here with him finding out about Nelly's death. But also, I do like this. As- Last thing. I, I, I like that this episode ends on this cliffhanger, though. There's more to Nelly's death than meets the eye, clearly. He, if anyone knows, Luke knows. And I do like that we kind of leave on that note. Suddenly that tough love from Steve didn't look so harsh. Like she did end up burning Luke. So great, great job of writing and making that pay off and make it make sense. I do like Luke seeing the man with the hat everywhere. Nice callbacks to the house and it keeps the tension going there. I'm glad to hear Luke say he didn't use when he called Paige. I was worried about that. Like I said, uh, Hey man, you got any more of those drugs? Like I thought he was going to use, but I think he was just taking them from her. So that was good. Um, the ending is a flurry. Luke is pacing and counting like he's been smoking rocks. And then the man in the hat gets super close to him and turns into his mother with headlight eyes. And then Paige and Steve show up to break the bad news. The ending was the best part of the, uh, the ending was the best scene in the episode to me. So I thought that was really well done. It's just so many moving parts in the series that I don't know how they're going to pull it all together. Hopefully they can reel me back in because it's not bad. I don't hate it. It's just so chaotic and busy for me. It's starting to lose me a little. But I distinctly remember the first time that I watched it, and maybe I thought it was just because I binged it. But the way that you're saying this, Dustin, makes me think it wasn't just because I binged it. It, it is a lot. 
you know, I mean, and, and maybe this watch through is, I don't know if it's slower or if it's just making more sense to me this time, but you're right. It was super chaotic the first time that I watched this. And I distinctly remember that exact same thing. Completely agree. But it was a lot that first watch through and the story, the way they told the story at that time for me was confusing because it, it's, it's a lot and we're going into the past and we're going in, you know, with ghosts. And there's just so much in this show. See, but like you said, it, Brian, this watch through it's landed for me a little bit better. It's slowed down just a smidge. So for me, you know, I've said this on the, on the movie review uh, show. Like I don't like when it seems like details are added on the fly. Like I like when a villain's powers are all established, you know, kind of upfront. So we know what we're dealing with because to me, when they add it late, it's like, Oh, we need to make this more interesting or kick it up a notch. Let's add this to me. That's how the show feels. It's like, I think he had an outline of the story, but didn't really have the bones of it until it was time to shoot. And he's like, oh, well, what if we did this? What if we did this? And so that's what I mean by chaotic and busy. It's like if all these things were established episode one, you don't have to reveal twists and stuff. Like that's not what I'm saying. But if you establish it early on and play on it throughout the series, I think it works a lot better than being four episodes in and then like, oh, here's something new. Four episodes in, here's something new, completely different. Like, that's what's missing for me. I feel you, but I feel like that would be too much in one episode. Like, just, then, there, there's a lot. Cut there, some like, of it out. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel you, but I mean, like y'all said, there were, we're learning five siblings, the dad, the mom, the Dudleys. Yeah. We're learning a lot of stories, but it all. Cut I, some I, of I those fucking kids all, out. Fuck hey, them kids. Hey, man, there's a lot to process, but. Uh, y'all got any final thoughts on episode four? Any fun facts before we get out of here? No. It's hard to find fun facts really on on a show like yeah. this because there's fun facts about the show. But when you break yeah. it down to like individual episodes, there's, there's not much out there. There's like six fun facts. And it's like like Luke was seven when this was made. Like, oh, all right, that's cool. You yeah. Know, or, you know, I, that's, I, cool. I, that's not real. I was just, just bull exactly. driving right there. Yeah. No. Nah, uh, <laughs> bull driving. Episode four, I, I definitely agree. It's my least favorite of the first four, but I did enjoy it more doing like my scene by scene notes, just like getting really invested in Luke, like here seeing his character get fleshed out a little more. But I'm really excited for five and six next week. I mean, on IMDb they have a nine point five and a nine point two rating. I mean, that's about as high as you can get on on that uh on, on that database. So I'm excited. Good. Uh, any final thoughts before we get out of here, guys? Uh really appreciate our blood donors. I'll take a big burden off of us. Final girl donor, Anita Russell. Her film is going to be Pitch Black. We'll be doing that the week after next. Looking forward to it. Never seen it. Camper level reoccurring, Clayton J, Nina, Michelle Mirza, the Horror Movie Crew Podcast, Alex Seligson, and Michael Evans. Camp Counselor reoccurring, Edwin Hernandez Gunn, Joe Swinford, Shan, Adrian Aiello, Karen, Brian Samick, Andrew Ferguson, Matt Strickland, Brooke Maley, Thorne David Phillips, Heather Superdoc, and Jennifer Davis from the Too Close to Home podcast. We really appreciate y'all's donations. It takes a big burden off us, helps us pay these bills. All right, we appreciate y'all tuning in. We hope y'all are enjoying DGOT, the series. Uh, I'm having a great time with it, and we appreciate y'all listening. We'll be back next week. Just want to remind everybody.
You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.